Thank you very much. If you would turn to Acts chapter 14 this morning. We want to continue working our way through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14. The book of Acts is obviously about the spread of the gospel through the early church. It's meant to be an encouragement to us all to keep in view the important role that God has given us as his people, which is to share the good news with the lost world around us. And in Acts chapter 14, we're in the middle of looking at Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, which was right around 47 or 48 A.D. It's... uh, in this chapter, it's talking about Paul and Barnabas' ministry to cities in Turkey, modern Turkey, about how they completed their work and returned to Antioch in Syria after about a little less than a year of being gone. And so what's interesting to me is the reason why I entitled this message Faithfulness in a Fickle World is because in this passage that we're about to read, in one uh, verse it says that they were trying to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas to worship them. And Paul and Barnabas was a, were able to prevent them from doing that. And in the very next verse, it says they stoned Paul and drug him out of the city. Now put those two things together. We want to sacrifice and worship you in one verse. In the next verse, we want to stone you, kill you, and drag you outside the city. That's what I would call a fickle world. And so that's where that title comes from. And I'd like for us to read this passage, Acts 14, and think about the reality that we all live in a fickle world, and yet we are to be faithful. We're not to be fickle people ourselves. As Christians, we are to be truly people that are consistent in how we live and and what we communicate to the world around us. So in Acts 14, verse 1, it says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And they, excuse me, and there they continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, 
The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. This is the word of God. We live in a a world that's constantly changing in various ways. And obviously in our country, there's all kinds of things going on. uh, A lot of different changes taking place. What's fascinating to me is looking at the reality that we've gotten to a place in our country where people are defining morality based on feelings, their own interpersonal feelings, and they're basing even their identities on interpersonal feelings. I just recently completed a book by Carl Truman called Strange New World, in which he uh, tries to understand how we got to where we are today in this country in terms of philosophical roots and things like that. And he makes a comment, he says, the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. So at different times you'll hear people talk about, I just want to be an authentic person. And what they mean by that is, I want my outward life to match my inward thoughts and feelings. And that's why we are where we are, because the reality is, Uh, If you live on that basis, uh, your inner thoughts and feelings can change from day to day. 
And therefore, what you do one day may not match what you do the next day. Uh, One of the really uh, interesting illustrations of this reality is that I read about a director of a children's, um, what's it called, Uh, hospital, I guess, children's hospital with gender, a gender development center. And this person who's the head of it um, says that there are an infinite number of genders. And she would say there are gender Priuses, which means there are people that think they're half girl and half boy. Uh, There are gender Tauruses, where they believe that they are a gender on the top and another gender on the bottom. That there are people that have different genders by season. You have schoolgirl gender and summer uh, boy gender. You have gender by location. I feel like I'm a boy when I'm at home. I feel like a girl when I'm at grandma's. It's all based on feeling. It's all based on the idea that my morality and my identity must be defined by what's inside of me because that's really the authentic me. That's the real me. The real me is what I feel and what I think and therefore to be authentic, I have to live in light of that. And if I feel like I'm a half boy, half girl, if I feel like a boy at school, but I feel like a girl in the summer, then I just have to live in light of that. That However I feel is what should define me. And I would say there could be no more fickle world than a world that is based on ever-changing feelings. And the word fickle means to be changing frequently or to change your opinion, your feelings suddenly and without a good reason. And so there's no doubt we live in a world where we're being called upon to affirm how people feel no matter what, even if it changes from moment to moment or day to day. And I would say there could be no more unsettling and crazy world than a world based on everyone's individual feelings. And it's interesting that um, that people are taking their lives in increasing rates, especially young people, in light of the kind of world that we're telling them that they're living in. And so how are we as Christians to not be like that? That's what I think this chapter addresses to some degree. And so let's just start with the first seven verses. In the first seven verses, it talks about the word of God's grace. It tells us in verse 1 that they uh, went um, to Iconium, which is another city in modern-day Turkey. They went into the synagogue. They preached the gospel And many people believe, both Jews and Gentiles, and by Gentiles they mean God-fearing Gentiles, Gentiles that were a part of the synagogue and worshipped with the Jews. And so many of them believe the gospel. But it says that the Jews there, there were many Jews that also disbelieved. They refused to believe the good news. And they actually stirred up other people to oppose the apostles. But it says they, they kept preaching the gospel and God confirmed their message through miracles. But at some point, the pressure got so great, and they realized that they were going to be stoned, and they fled to another city. And indeed, in different places in Scripture, uh, the Lord Jesus will say, you may need to flee to, the, to another city 
but don't stop doing what you're doing. Even if you have to flee to another city, keep preaching the gospel. Don't stop preaching the gospel. But what is interesting to me about this passage is the question. So it got to a point in Iconium that they were ready to stone Paul and Barnabas. For what reason? Were they going around killing people? Were they going around robbing people? No, they're going around, the Bible says, telling people about a message that is called the word of God's grace. If you just think about that a minute, that's, in a sense, astounding. I've got good news for you, that God will save you freely by his grace, not based on any works of your own. And somebody responds by saying, you ought to die for that message. Why would that even happen? Well, the reality is, first of all, we just need to remind ourselves that the gospel is about grace. It's very much about the fact that we're not saved by our own performance. Because even as Christians, the Puritans would say, we're all naturally legalists. And probably the greatest thing we have to overcome on a day-to-day basis is our legalism, that my standing before God is based on what I do or don't do. And yet the Bible says in Ephesians 2, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or Romans 3 says, For we, we maintain that a man is justified, declared righteous by faith, apart from works of the law. There's a sense in which you could define grace as, Grace is God giving me what Jesus deserves, because he received what I deserve. Jesus deserves everything. And the Bible says that's what we get. Only Jesus means everything Jesus gets. And Jesus gets everything. So only Jesus isn't only Jesus, so to speak. It's everything. It's what God gives us because Jesus received what we deserve. We get what he deserves. He received what we deserve. And yet it's interesting that a message like that would be so opposed. If you recall, Martin Luther came to the conclusion, as he read Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God was not God punishing sinners, but God giving sinners a gift of righteousness so that they could know him and enjoy him. And he went from hating God to loving God. And he began telling people that you're not saved by indulgences, you're not saved by doing certain things in the Roman Catholic Church, You're actually saved by grace through faith alone, no works. The Roman Catholic Church excommunicated him and was prepared to stone him as well, if they could have. So the question is, why would such good news stir up such opposition? Well, just briefly, it's because it's it appears to be a foolish, counterintuitive message. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness, both to Jews and Gentiles. Because it says we're not saved by earning it. It's just a gift. And we're actually saved through someone who was crucified. Which means we're saved by someone who was condemned as a criminal. 
And the Jews and the Gentiles look at that and say, that's foolishness. God would never simply save someone apart from them earning it. God would never save someone simply through the death of this obscure person who died as a criminal on a cross. So part of it is, it's a foolish message. Another reason why it's rejected in this world, because it's a narrow message. Not only uh, is it foolish, but it says you're only saved through Jesus. Jesus is non-optional. You can't go through Buddha. You can't go through Muhammad or Islam or anything else. You have to go through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That kind of exclusive message definitely upsets people. They don't like that. And it's a very humbling message. The Bible tells us that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners, except for two kinds, the rich and the rebellious. If I'm a rich sinner, he says, I have all the righteousness I need. I'm good enough as I am. I don't need Jesus. Jesus can't save that person that person doesn't need the kind of savior he is now obviously by god's grace we can change that heart attitude but what i mean is he doesn't save people who are rich in their own hearts and minds he only saves humble people who acknowledge their need for him neither does he save rebellious people who say i will not bow the knee to jesus i want to live for myself we have to receive jesus as both savior and Lord, and that is something that the world doesn't want. That strikes the heart of pride that we all have naturally. You mean I'm not good enough? And you mean I have to actually obey someone else? That strikes at our very nature as sinners. So grace is so God-glorifying and Jesus-exalting that it will always be opposed by those who are rich in their own righteousness and rebels who want to be their own God. So for me, as I think about what the scripture says, that kind of explains why good news could be heard as bad news. Because it challenges us where we are as sinners. The second uh, part of this passage, verses 8 through 18, is actually a warning, because we see going on here, the um, healing of a man who's been uh, lame from birth. And Paul tells him to stand up on his feet after seeing that uh, he had faith to be made well. He jumps up and everyone looks at that and they see, they see that and they begin to conclude that Paul and Barnabas are not just men. They're gods. They have come down to earth in the form of men and that Barnabas, who must have been the older, more mature-looking maybe, uh, was Zeus, and that Paul was Hermes, and Hermes uh, was the messenger of the gods. Zeus was the king of the gods, of the Greek gods. What's interesting is that even today there is a movement in Greece to be in worshiping uh, the Greek gods again. And there are a lot of people who worship Zeus today, uh, which is a fascinating thing. But this all plays out, and eventually um, Paul and Barnabas realize that the 
the priest of Zeus is organizing a worship service. And he's organizing that worship service in order to sacrifice to them as if they were Zeus and Hermes. And they do everything they can to prevent that. They, they say, you know what? The very gospel, the very message that we're proclaiming to you stands against the very thing that you want to do. You want to worship us. And we're telling you that you need to worship the living God. We're, ju- we're men just like you are. We're not gods. And so they oppose this idolatrous worship. And the question is, why is that such a big deal? I mean, so what? They decide to have a worship service and they, they speak very highly of you. Why is idolatry such a big deal? I mean, I mean, worship is worship, right? Does it really matter that we have all these different religions around the world? If, uh, if people are worshiping something, isn't that better than nothing? And the answer is no, it's not better than nothing. Um, the Bible tells us in all kinds of ways that the gospel actually calls us to repent of idolatry. But you can't be a Christian and worship other things. You can't get hell insurance and worship everything but God. Repentance is actually a turning from idols, turning from sin, and turning to God. That's why in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 1, 9, excuse me, it says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And at the very end of 1 John, it says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. In Romans chapter 1, there's a long discussion of the fact that we suppress the truth, we exchange God for other false gods, and it results in all kinds of sin. Which the bottom line is, you cannot and you will not love people if you idolize people. That's the amazing thing, is that by worshiping the, a false god, it doesn't make you a greater lover of people. It actually keeps you from loving people as you should. And so there's it's an interesting thing that, um, you know, they've done studies to find out who is more likely to um, kill women. And it's actually their romantic partners. Why, why would that be the case? Why would it be more likely that you would be killed by someone that supposedly loves you. Why would that be? It's an interesting fact that many, many times that's the case. Well, think about this story in 2 Samuel 13, Amnon and Tamar. You might remember that story. Amnon is one of the sons of David. He falls in love with one of his sisters, Tamar, and he just can't live without her. And so one of his uh, friends comes up with a plan to get her to come and uh, cook for him. And in the process, he takes advantage of her. And it says, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he had hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. How do you go from loving someone so intensely that you can't live without them to hating them? 
It's because you can't live without them. You can't love people that you can't live without. Because you were never meant to base your life on anyone or anything in this world. God is the only one we can't live without. And the only way we can love people who we can live without is if we are basing our worship on the one whom we truly can't live without. Just think about this relationship quiz. Um, think about people in your life that you treat nicely or that I treat nicely. Why do you treat them nicely? Why do I treat people nicely? And then ask the question, will you treat them nicely after you get what you want from them? Or will you treat them nicely if you don't get what you want from them? The reality is Amnon loved Tamar as long as he thought he could get from her what he wanted. When he realized that he could not get from her what he wanted, he hated her. That is the way idolatry works. That is how we can find out if we're really loving people, like God calls us to, or idolizing people. We're idolizing people. We might say, I love that person, but when they don't give me what I want, then I, I want to hurt them. I don't want anything to do with them. I shut down. I want to distance myself from them. Idolatry is not something that just happened in the first century. Idolatry is something that all of us wrestle with every day. Whether or not I'm really loving people or just idolizing them. I'm being nice to them because I, I want certain things from them. But if I don't get it or after I get it, then I don't treat them the same. And that's what brings me back to James chapter 4, which I read during our prayer time where he says, um, you lust and you can't obtain, and so you murder. That's not necessarily literally murder. It could be literal, or it could simply be we kill people in our hearts and minds, or we kill people with our words, or we kill people with just we walk away. Because we lust, we have to have this, but we're not obtaining it. We're not getting what we want from people. And therefore, we've idolized them. And that's what James says. It just exposes our idolatry. And therefore, God says, you need to reorient yourself. You need to let me to be the one you're looking to for your help and your happiness, not others. And so, when I think about what Paul is talking about here, why would he be so concerned they ripped their garments said do not worship us why because you'll never worship god as you should if you do and you won't love other people as you should either if you do uh, it's crucial idolatry is no small thing we might look at things in such a way that we say you know well, at least they're not murderers they're they're worshiping other things well how do you become a murderer by worshiping other things. That's the reality of life in this world. And so, practically speaking, we have to um, think about these things lest we think, oh, that's just first century stuff. You know, that whole idolatry thing, that was, that's just Bible stuff. It's not really anything that we have to deal with today. But the reality is an idol is anything that I put in the place of God to which I look to it ultimately for my help and my happiness. 
It can be my spouse. It can be my children. It can be my job. It can be any, my bank account. Anything I look to ultimately for my help and my happiness becomes my God. And it affects me and it affects my relationships in incredible ways. So there's a warning. It's the word of God, God's grace where God says, you can have a relationship with me by grace through faith because of what my son has done. And I will be everything you need and everything you desire. But warning, even as a Christian, you can idolize people. And that will be detrimental in all kinds of ways. Then there's another warning with regard to how we respond to tribulation in verses 19 through 23. Obviously, I mentioned earlier that um, they go from wanting to sacrifice and worship Paul to stoning Paul. And that's about as fickle as you can get. Is going from loving Tamar with all that you are to hating her just as much as you ever loved her. That's the kind of fickle world that we live in. And God says that is not the way we are to be. And yet there are challenges to uh, living this way in this world. And one of the challenges that we have is how we respond to tribulation. And so Paul gets stoned. And it appears that he didn't actually die because it says that they supposed him to be dead, so that seems to imply that they thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. And yet, he gets up and he walks, I think, about 38 miles to the next city to preach and continue ministering. Uh, Getting stoned is no light affliction. And if they thought you were dead, you can bet they tried to make sure you were dead. And so it's no telling how many bumps and bruises and cuts and things that he had all over his body after being stoned, but God miraculously raised him up. And they moved on and they preached. And then he does something that's really amazing. Then he goes back to the very place that he was stoned. He goes back to Lystra and these other cities. And he checks on the disciples. And he stands there. And this is within just a at the most a few weeks of having been been stoned, he stands before them. Like I can imagine Jonah standing before the people of Nineveh. Jonah being in a fish for three days. Uh, they, they imagine that his, white, his skin was probably white and he probably looked like he had been in a fish for three days. And he's going around the city preaching, repent, are you going to be judged? Well, imagine being stoned and just a few weeks later, uh, Paul could say, I, I bear the scars of Jesus in my body after having been stoned, just standing there saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Look at me if you don't believe it. He was a show-and-tell opportunity. Don't be surprised if this happens to you. It does not mean God doesn't love you. It does not mean you're not on your way into the kingdom of heaven. God promised that we would bear some measure of tribulation. We may not all be stoned, but there will be some measure of suffering and tribulation. And so, to me, that's the context for Paul saying that he encouraged them, he tried to strengthen them so that they would continue in the faith. What is the implication? Uh, Most people get stoned 
for doing something or saying something, give it up. They stop saying that. <laughs> you know, they stop doing that. If the possibility is I'm going to get stoned for saying that or doing that, maybe I'll just stop doing that. Maybe I'll just walk away from Christ. If identifying with Christ is going to get me stoned. The reality is there are a lot of people that we've heard of lately that are deconstructing. And just recently, one of the people who've, who's done that over the last several years is named Derek Webb. He used to be one of the singers with Cademan's Call. And it's interesting how many people will talk about how they loved Cademan's Call for music back in the 90s, I think, and how, for them, their music was actually a gateway into Reformed theology that the kind of music they were singing and producing was very sovereign grace-oriented. And a lot of people loved their music and got into Reformed theology and began to see God's glory and salvation in a new way because of it. And Derek Webb was very much a part of writing those songs and singing those songs. And now today, he's just come out with a, a new album after 10 years called Christian and Gospel. And someone has commented on that who's listened to it and said it's anything but Christian or gospel. They would call it an ode to deconstruction. And um, one of the songs is called God in Drag. And in that song, he kind of plays off the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you that man is fallen and that Jesus is the only way to be saved. You have heard that man has fallen, and that Jesus is the only way to be saved. But I say unto you, you're beautiful and free. In other words, you're beautiful and free just as you are. You, you don't have to go through Jesus. Um, you're not so fallen that you aren't beautiful or anything like that. Then there's another song that he has on this album called Boys Will Be Girls. Uh, where he says, I've heard Jesus loved and spent his life with those who were abandoned by proud and fearful men. So if a church won't celebrate and love you, they're believing lies that can't save even them. So he's arguing that if we don't celebrate sin, he wouldn't call it sin, but what the Bible calls sin, if we don't celebrate it, we're not really being loving. When amazingly, the Bible says to celebrate sin is to be unloving. So the point is that there are a lot of people like Derek Webb who are being deceived by the idea that to be loving is to embrace what anybody feels to be right in terms of their moral standards, in terms of their identity. And the Bible says, no, what's really loving is to tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And therefore, Jesus told people the truth, and you could argue that it got him killed. They hated him because he told them the truth. And Jesus said, don't be surprised if they hate you just like they hated me. The last point is this. In the last verses 24 through 28, we see them going back to um, Antioch and they give a report on the fact that God had done 
things with them or had done things through them. And so what's interesting to me in these uh, verses is the fact that they're giving God all the glory for whatever they did on this mission trip. And there's a um, passage in Isaiah 10 where God says, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it, is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? And the obvious answer is, of course not. You know, if someone builds you a house, you don't thank the hammer. You thank the one who used the hammer. And obviously, we're more complex than hammers. We're not just hammers. But there is a real truth in the reality that no matter how God has created us and gifted us and and uses us in the lives of people, the bottom line is we don't deserve any more credit for what happens than a hammer does in building a house, that God truly gets all the glory for what takes place. Paul could say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That whatever good I receive is by God's grace, whatever good I do is by God's grace. And we need to keep that in mind. Ultimately, one of the things that for me is encouraging this passage is the idea that we do live in a very changing world. And I can remember growing up as a teenager, and one of the things that I bemoaned as a teenager is that I felt like people were fickle. I felt like I could, couldn't depend on people's attitudes or moods from one day to the next. I didn't know what I was getting. Um, there's a recent story about The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon that you may have read a little bit about. And it, there's some controversy over how much truth there is to the story, but the basic idea is that there are people in this Rolling Stones report that are complaining about this toxic work environment. And one of the things that is said about the situation was, and this is my point here, it says in the article, you never knew which Jimmy you were going to get and when he was going to throw a hissy fit. I'm not saying whether or not that report is true or not, but the idea that you, n- you never know what you're going to get is exactly what drives people crazy. You never know what you're going to get. Well, we live in a world where you might say something and you might not realize what a firestorm you just created. You might do something that two years ago was fine, but now you get canceled or you, get, you lose your job over it. You never know what you might get in a fickle world. You don't know how people are going to respond. Um, it's very different than it was just a few years ago. You don't know what you're going to get from people and from society. And so what, what keeps us sane in a world like this? What keeps us from wanting to do what a lot of people are doing, which is just throwing up their hands and, and quitting or ending it all, so to speak? Our peace comes from one who never changes. That's where our peace comes from. It says in Psalm 18, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What doesn't change in a fickle world? God doesn't change. His person doesn't change. 
His purposes do not change. His promises do not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, we can trust God. We don't have to um, be anxious because we don't know what the world's going to give me. We can be at peace because we know what God's going to give me. That's where our peace comes from. But for us as Christians, practically, what, what shouldn't change for us? Our practice shouldn't change. And our proclamation shouldn't change. We, could, we should still seek to be godly people. We should still seek to love the love of Christ, no matter how fickle people are, no matter how uncertain the society is. We should seek to still be constant in seeking to love the love of Christ. And we should continue speaking the gospel, even if it gets us stoned. That's what Acts 14 is encouraging us to keep in mind, to think about, and to do. That we keep on being faithful. Well, let me just ask a few questions as we conclude here. Some questions that kind of come out of these um, these four um, sections of this chapter. As we conclude, let me ask the question, when you think about your relationship with God, do you see it as being built on what you do or what Jesus did for you? That might seem like an obvious question. Of course, we, we think it's built on what Christ did for us. Are you thinking and feeling and living like that is the case, is really the question. And if you haven't trusted Christ, do you actually believe that your works are good enough in the eyes of God? And will you reject God's grace? And so the first question is, with regard to the word of God's grace, is is my relationship with God truly built on grace or is it built on works? is so easy for us even as Christians but another secondary question is your relationship with people is your relationship with people built on grace or built on works which means do you treat people based on how they treat you or do you treat people based on how God has treated you and does treat you to live our lives in light of the gospel is to make sure our relationship with God is built on grace, not on our performance, not on our works, and to make sure that our relationships are based on grace, not based on other people's works, how they perform, whether or not they're treating us the way they ought to treat us, or whether or not we are actually living in light of how God has treated us and continues to treat us in Christ. That's what it means to live in light of the word of his grace. With regard to the whole issue of idolatry, the question we can ask is, in our relationships, is simply, are we being nice for what we can get or for what we can give? Because if we're just being, quote, nice to people because of what we can get, as soon as we get it, or if we don't get it, we will stop being nice. Might mean walking away from them, might mean just being short with them or unkind to them. But the reality is, um, God wants us to give regardless of what other people do or don't do. He don't, doesn't want us to, to think that people 
are necessary for our help and our happiness. Only he's necessary for our help and our happiness. Idolatry is a relationship killer. Thirdly, under the section of um, tribulation, the question is, when you think about what you're going through, are they a test of God's love for you or a test of your faith? The Bible says we should not see our trials as a test of God's love, as if, you know, if God really loved me, he wouldn't put me through this. The Bible tells us instead it's not a test of God's love, it's a test of our faith, whether or not we trust God to be loving us no matter what. I've heard people ask the question, Is God's word true even if I don't feel like it? The answer is yes. That is the test of faith, is whether or not, even when it doesn't feel like God is loving me, even when it doesn't feel like God is with me, even when it doesn't feel like God is keeping his promises, I've got his word, and his word tells me he is loving me. He is keeping his promises. He is with me. And I'm going to trust him no matter what. It's a test of faith. It's truly a test of faith and a test of whether or not we're truly continuing to believe the love of God for us. Who's on trial or what's on trial in our trials? Many times God's on trial. When really what's truly on trial is our own faith in God and his love for us. Well, finally, the last question for application is, do you trace good things back to me or thee? Do you trace good things in your life back to yourself or to God? Do you trace the good that you do back to yourself or to God? It may be a small thing, in our minds, but it's truly the issue of whether or not God gets the glory for the good things we receive or the good things we do or not. And it makes a difference. I was talking with someone just recently, um, and he was talking about the fact that he realized for the first time in his Christian life how important it is to live to the glory of God. But that is something we should be thinking about all the time. What does that mean? Well, it certainly at least means that I'm tracing every good thing I receive back to God and every good thing I do is traced back to God too. That is something he's accomplishing in my life and through my life. And I thank him for it. I give him the glory for it, which is what uh, Paul and Barnabas did as they wrapped up their first missionary journey. And so... My encouragement for myself and my encouragement to you is that um, expect sinners to be fickle, but don't expect God to be fickle. God does not change. His person, his promises, his, his purposes do not change, and we can trust him. And he calls us to be like him in the sense that we keep living the way he calls us to live. We keep proclaiming the gospel as he calls us to proclaim it and trust God to actually save people through that faithful witness in a world that is increasingly unpredictable and ever-changing.
Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that encourages us to to look to you as the unchanging hope and help and happiness that we look for, we need, we desire. We live in a world where things are so unpredictable, people are unpredictable, how people are going to respond uh, to what we say and what we do is increasingly unpredictable. Indeed, what people think about what's right and wrong and how they think about themselves is based on feelings and therefore very unpredictable. And so the potential to offend is great in our day and time. And the idea of living in a world like that, living, uh, in a sense, walking on eggshells, could be very debilitating, very anxious-creating. And yet, Father, you, you call us to trust you, to fix our eyes on you, and to see that you do not change. Your promises to us in Christ do not change. And that we can know that you will take care of us. And you just call us to be faithful to trust you and to love in the ways you've called us to and to keep declaring that you are good and that you extend mercy to sinners through your Son. Help us to do that faithfully more and more in this world. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.